0: This episode will discuss childhood sexual abuse, and if that is not something that you would like to listen to, this is not the episode for you, and see you again next week.
1: Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people from history. Last week we had a special episode with Arthur Azarath. Who was talking about Mustafa bin Ismail, a Tunisian street sweeping twink who rose to become prime minister and he ended up taking down a whole nation? Who are you talking about this
0: week, Ben? Well, I'm going to uh, begin today's episode by reading from the first pages of our subject's autobiography. I was born on November 22nd, 1869. My parents at that time lived in the Rue de Medici in an apartment on the fourth floor which they left a few years later, and of which I have kept no recollection. Still, I do recall the balcony, or what could be seen from the balcony, the bird's-eye view of the Place with its ornamental piece of water and fountain. Or rather, to be still more exact, I remember the paper dragons which my father used to cut out for me and which we launched into the air from the balcony. I remember their floating away in the wind over the fountain in the Place below and being carried away as far as the Luxembourg gardens where they used sometimes to catch in the top branches of the horse chestnut trees. I remember, too, a biggish table, the dining-room table, no doubt, with its tablecloth that reached nearly to the ground. I used to crawl underneath it with the concierge's little boy, who sometimes came to play with me. What are you up to under there, my nurse would call out. Nothing, we're playing. And then we would make a great noise of our playthings, which we had taken with us for the sake of appearances. In reality, we amused ourselves otherwise beside each other but not with each other. We had what I afterwise learned are called bad habits. Which of us two taught them first to the other? I have no idea. Surely a child may sometimes invent them for himself. Personally, I cannot say whether anyone instructed me in the knowledge of pleasure or in what manner I discovered it. I only know that as far back as the recollection goes, I cannot remember a time without it. I perfectly realize, for that matter, that I am doing myself harm by relating this and other things that follow. I foresee what use will be made of them against me. But the whole purpose of my story is to be truthful. Put the case that I am writing it for a penance. One would like to believe that in the age of innocence the soul is all sweetness, light, and purity, but I can remember nothing in mine that was not ugly, dark, and deceitful. Wow, that's a bold opening paragraph. So that's the opening of If It Die, which is by André Gide, the French writer who became the granddaddy of a generation of European writers and intellectuals who figured themselves against the romanticized and exoticized other to be found in the so-called Orient. Gide's life expresses a series of paradoxes. He became an icon of homoerotic literature, but was married to a woman, sired a daughter, and never identified as gay. May I ask you an indiscreet question, an interviewer asked in 1950. He replied, there are no indiscreet questions, only indiscreet answers. The interviewer, is it true that you're a homosexual? Gide, no, monsieur, I am not a homosexual. I am a pederast. Wow. Um, So he was capable both of an asceticism rooted in his Protestant upbringing and also a profound sensualism that was emblematized in sexual experimentation. And as we'll see, he racialized that sensualism in some really troubling ways. He was capable both of figuring North Africa as a sensualist's paradise, a delight of erotic experimentation in a classically Orientalist mode, and of traveling through French colonies and writing scathing journalism, indicting French capitalism's abuse of Africa and Africans. He was a communist who broke with communism after seeing Stalin's attacks on cultural freedom. His life lived between 1869 and 1951, so earlier than most of the writers with whom he's often associated, Mm. helps us understand major shifts in forms of male homosexual identification and the relationship between that identification and colonized subjects. Edmund White um, wrote in the London Review of Books, quote, Gay men like me, who came of age in the 50s and 60s, knew more about Gide's personal lives than they knew about many of their own friends' lives. His Protestant beginnings his sexless marriage to his cousin Madeleine, his espousal of Catholicism, then communism, and his subsequent renunciations of each, his affair with Marc Alegre, 31 years younger than he, his year-long trip to Africa, his fathering a child with Elizabeth Rand Risselberg after what appears to have been his unique sexual experience with a woman. Uh, White goes on, Today, many, if not most, up-and-coming writers in the English-speaking world are routinely confessional. Focused on their childhoods, they invariably discover the same pathetic blights, alcoholism and abuse, family dysfunction, even incest. Gide, by contrast, never saw himself as wounded, never complained about his fate, nor sought to assign blame. And he wasn't much interested in the past. On the contrary, he was eager to attune himself to each new generation. End quote. So there's a recent uh, queer theory book that I really like which is about another great French gay troublemaker who liked sucking dick in North Africa, Jean Genet. The book is called Disturbing Attachments by Kaji Amin. And Amin's thesis is that scholars and activists too often shy away from the heart of the naughty conflicts that lie at the heart of our most influential and problematic, to use the term to mean a criteria of interest, queer thinkers and activists. So the example of Genet, Genet first meets Arab men as a French colonial soldier and then develops what Amin calls the, quote, holy grail of a politics of radical solidarity across difference, out of the experience of sex with much younger Arab men and teens. And so instead of understanding this as a movement across a life, one in which the sex sort of healed and deterritorialized territorialized moving him from the colonialist position to the position of alliance, um, Amin... And suggests that we think of this as being temporally simultaneous. So not first colonialist, then liberatory, but yes, and. Hmm. And so Amin is asking basically what, this is a quote from the book, what historical forms of relation must be forgotten, overlooked, or suppressed so that contemporary queer theory can sustain its key critical and political commitments and imaginaries? And that question is not unrelated to the question we always ask on this podcast, which is, who do we choose to remember and why do we choose to forget? But it's also how we remember that's important. And so by examining Gide in his role as a major influence on gay male identity formation, even though that's not how he identified, Hmm. we force ourselves to confront some very uncomfortable truths about gay male sexuality's relationships to race, pederasty, and systems of production and exchange. So Gide was born in Paris in 1869, the year that in Berlin, the lawyer Karl-Maria Kertbeny coined the term homosexuality. He was the son of a professor of law at the Sorbonne and lived in a lovely flat overlooking the Luxembourg Gardens, as we've heard about. The family was Protestant on both sides, but his father was from the south of France and his mother from the north. His mother was very strict. Um, His father was uh, more gentle and loved reading to him from the Arabian Nights. He was sent at the age of five to what his biographer, George D. Painter, calls, quote, a private school for infant boys and big girls, Um, a phrase that I find find just irresistible. What does that even mean? I I don't know, but (laughs) is she, she, you know, an infant boy or a big girl? Um, Or both. So then he left the school for infant boys and big girls and went to a Protestant school, um, which... uh, he ended up doing pretty well at after measles and misbehavior set him back a year. Despite his family being well-off, his mother dressed him in cheap clothes, so the difference between him and poorer friends wasn't visible. And so the baby André was longing for soft shirts and sailor suits and berets. At the age of 11, André's father died of tuberculosis. The family moved to Montpellier, where he for the first time felt excluded for being a Protestant. At one point, he was... Chased home by Catholic students throwing mud. Partially, as I think, as a psychosomatic reaction to this, he developed headaches and was sent to a spa where he was given potassium bromide and chloral hydrate. Like as a young teenager, which is crazy because those are both extremely poisonous and habit-forming. Uh, but he ended up breaking the habit.
1: This seems to be a theme of the season so far: of these, um, these like crazy so-called cures of people for people.
0: The family moved back to Paris when André was 13, and he began attending school. Uh, he got much more serious about the piano, and he became sort of a young, Protestant ascetic. Again, quoting George Painter's biography, quote, He rose at dawn, took a cold bath, slept on boards, and awoke at the dead of night to kneel and pray. And these exercises he saw as an act not of mortification, but of joy. His love for his cousin Madeleine, end quote. And this love had began when he was transfixed by... Her magnificent sadness, quote, like his love for God depended on the basis of the beloved. Perhaps, he said, during these ardent renunciations of the flesh, he might have heard if he had only listened, the devil rubbing his hands and sniggering in the corner, end quote. (laughs) Wow. And that's, yeah, that's so intense. I love my pretty cousin because she's so sad. Yeah. So I'm going to have a cold bath every morning and sleep on a wooden board. So the young Andre became a writer and became entranced by the poetics of symbolism. And so in 1891, at the age of 22, he published his first book, The Notebooks of Andre Walter. Painter characterizes symbolism as the first of several attempted escapes from the moralism in which Sheed was raised, but it wasn't until the mid to late 1890s that he would find the thing that would truly be his escape from that world, and that was young Arab men and teenage boys. And so um, I'm now going to return to the autobiography if I die for a bit and let Gide narrate for you a bit what happened here. In the name of what God or what ideal do you forbid me to live according to my nature? And where would my nature lead me if I simply followed it? Up to the present, I had accepted Christ's code of morals, or at any rate, a kind of Puritanism which I had been taught to consider as Christ's code of morals. By forcing myself to submit to it, I had merely caused a profound disturbance in my whole being. I would not content to live lawlessly, and I required my mind's assent to the demands of my body. Even if those demands had been more usual, I doubt whether I should have been less troubled. For as long as I thought it my duty to deny my desire everything, what I desire did not matter. But I gradually came to wonder whether God really exacted such constraints, whether it was not impious to be in continual rebellion, whether such rebellion was not against him, and whether in the struggle that divided me it was reasonable to consider the opponent always in the wrong. Continuing later, I was resolved in some case to go on a journey, but I had hesitated as to whether I should accept my cousin George Pouchet's invitation to accompany him on a scientific cruise to Iceland, and I was still hesitating when Paul Laurent was given a traveling scholarship which obliged him to go abroad for a year, the choice he made of me as a companion decided my fate, and so my friend and I started off on our journey, end quote. And so he decides to go to North Africa and not to Iceland. Uh, Who knows what would have happened to the course of world literature if he had gone to Iceland instead.
1: Yeah, I'm just trying to unpick what he's saying there as well about I guess this sort of like theology of of sin that he has. That he's basically saying um, why... As long as he, as long as he maintained that intense sort of Protestant Puritanical uh, expulsion of all desire from his life, and it was fine. But then, once he started to let it in, he thought, "Why would God have given me these desires?"
0: Yeah, we'll see. His Gide's relationship to morality is fascinating, um, and we will we will be talking a lot about it throughout. So, going back to the autobiography now, we've now arrived in French North Africa. Quote On the very first day, as soon as we made our appearance in the bazaar, a small guide of about 14 years old took possession of us and escorted us into the shops. I'm going to stop here and say that uh, we now have a major trigger warning for basically the entire rest of the episode coming up um, that has to do with um, pederasty, with sex between men and boys, um, with Childhood sexual abuse. Um, so this is going to be a major theme of the rest of the episode to the extent that I think if you don't want to hear a frank discussion of that, you should probably turn this episode off and wait until next week's episode to continue. As he spoke French fairly well and moreover was charming, we made an appointment with him for the next day at our hotel. He was called Sessi and came from the island of Jerba, said to be the Isle of the Lotus Eaters. I remember our anxiety when he d- we did not turn up at the appointed hour. And a few days later, when he came into my room, we had left the hotel and taken a little apartment, carrying the things we had just bought. I remembered my mixed and troubled feelings when he half-undressed in order to show me how to drape myself in a hike.
1: <sighs> okay, let's see how this is going.
0: Oh, yes. So uh, now uh, we go with uh, the guide, Ali, out into the desert. Ali, this was my little guide's name, led me up among the sand sandhills in spite of the fatigue of walking the sand I followed him. We soon reached a kind of funnel or crater, the rim of which was just high enough to command the surrounding country and give a view of anyone coming. As soon as we got there, Ali flung the coat and rug down on the sloping sand. He flung himself down too and stretched on his back, with his arms spread out on each side of him. He looked at me and laughed. I was not such a simpleton as to misunderstand his invitation, but I did not answer it at once. I sat down myself, not very far from him, but yet not very near either, and in my turn looked at him steadily and waited, feeling extremely curious as to what he would do next. So they're there in this crater, they have this sort of abortive encounter. One thing that's really interesting about this book, and it's not in these quotes here, um, is that the extent to which these quote unquote guides are embedded in extremely exploitative systems of colonial sex work is completely known to the narrator. Like it's known at the level of the narration, it's mm-hmm. known to the narrator in the text. Uh, it's not presented as something that the narrator discovered after what is being narrated, right? Yeah. It's just it's entirely present, um, and it's just worth keeping that in mind as we continue. This is not it, the narrator isn't oblivious to it, um, which doesn't make it better. Um, in many ways, it makes it worse. But it's worth it's worth noting that so. So then we go into the, uh, then, then, uh, we have the sort of second encounter where, where, uh, this is all, uh, where this is all consummated. So here we go quote, goodbye. Then he said, seizing the hand he was holding out. I sent him spinning to the ground at once. He began laughing again. He made short shrift of the complicated knots and the lacings that served him as a belt, pulled a little dagger out of his pocket and slashed through the tangle with a single cut. Down fell his clothes. He threw his vest away and stood up naked as a God. For a moment, he stretched his slender arms heavenward. Then, still laughing, he fell upon me. His body may have been burning hot, but to me it felt as refreshing as deep shade. How lovely the sand was! In the glorious splendor of evening, what radiance bathed my joy! Yeah, so that's his first sexual encounter.
1: In terms of what you're saying about that, th- is there an implicit thing there that he's sort of describing the in his in his reading of it, the willingness of this? this child to engage in like a sexual encounter uh, because he, that he understands that as part of the sort of economy of sex work that he's involved in as sort of um, almost like the initiating partner. And that's, yes, like, and that's liberatory for Gide as a Westerner who's been told he yes. must feel shameful and sinful.
0: That this yes, boy and, doesn't. He is, and, and he is extremely, extremely insistent. And this is, I mean, this is a, something that we see often in, Sort of pro pedophilia or pro abuse literature, yeah. or or argumentation that it's it's this it's the it's the kid that wants it, right? Well, not He's just describing that. being seduced, yeah. Here, not just right? that, they, but
1: you get that in all sorts. Not just with the, even necessarily with that sort of uh, racialized element, but in other other forms of pederastic literature in general, that the, the child is understood as innocent and therefore their desires are free from uh the shame that this older narrator feels around their own sexuality so it's therefore somehow yeah more pure right
0: which is a super fucked up way of assuming innocence it's it's an unbelievably fucked up way of assuming innocence yeah Um, so before we before we leave algeria um we need to talk a little bit um about some other people that Gide runs, runs into um, down there and some of the experiences that he has with them uh, in this kind of economy of sex work and the way that he differentiates himself from certain other people. So we're now going back to Gide narrating, quote, I was on the point of leaving and the omnibus had already gone to the station with my bag and trunk. I can still see myself standing in the hall of the hotel waiting for my bill. When my eye fell by chance on a slate on which the names of the visitors were written, and I began to read them mechanically. My own first, then the names of various strangers, and suddenly my heart gave a leap. The last two names on the list were... Wait for it, Hugh. Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas.
1: Oh, wow. The
0: whole thing's just a big circle. (laughs) Gay culture. The gay community. So... Basically, what happens is that Bozy shows up and starts dragging Gide around the various um, places and trying to teach him about all of the fun sex he can have with teenage sex workers. And And Gide is like, I know. And Bozy's playing like big man tourist who sort of knows, like, you you know what I mean? This sort of superior. So this is now we're like now quoting Bozy as quoted in Gide's text. All these guides are idiotic. It's no good explaining. They'll always take you to cafes which are full of women. I hope you're like me. I have a horror of women. I only like boys. As you're coming with us this evening, I think it's better to say so at once. Gide then says, I could not think Bozy as beautiful as Wilde did, but though he had the despotic manners of a spoiled child, He combined them with so much grace that I soon began to understand why it was that Wilde always followed so submissively in his wake. To tell the truth, Bosie interested me extremely, but terrible he certainly was. And in my opinion, it is he who ought to be held responsible for all that was disastrous in Wilde's career. Wilde beside him seemed gentle, wavering, and weak-willed. Douglas was possessed by the perverse instinct that drives a child to break his finest toy. Nothing ever satisfied him. He always wanted to go one better. End quote.
1: There's also a strong uh, sense here of um, Sebastian Flight in Brideshead Revisitors, the Evelyn War book, where he ends up in a sort of similar position of this sort of uh, queer Westerner living in North Africa, I think, sort of, yeah, like taking this uh, educated tourist position.
0: I also want to put this a little bit in the context of the conversation that we had with Arthur Asaraf last week. Um, about the kind of existing systems of intergenerational sex and sex work in Tunisia, in that case, before French colonization, Um, which is not to say that French colonization was not um, traumatic, violent, unjustified, and did not have a significant and sort of disfiguring effect on local sex gender systems, but it is to say that this sort of figure of the beautiful receptive, younger boy as the sort of beloved object was also something that was indigenous there. Um, Like there there was something that was being encountered. Um, It's the the power conditions around the encounter are um, profoundly unequal. And then the thing that is being encountered is itself an expression of profoundly unequal um, power relations with which are which are probably definitionally abusive
1: yeah i mean presumably though it's the pre-existing modes is what attracted those men those western european men to go there in the first place as essentially sex tourists and it's also the uh, power differential that they can exploit that is also maybe part of the
0: attraction Absolutely. So in 1895, uh, he marries his cousin Madeline, the sad, silent cousin of his youth, and uh, this marriage is, you will be shocked to discover, never consummated. Um, On his honeymoon, rather than uh, having sex with Madeline, he, to quote the painter biography, quote, took boy models to his room in Rome on the pretext of photographing them and quote, on the train from Biskra to Algiers, flirted through the window with schoolboys in the next carriage. You look like a criminal or a madman, Madeline admonished him afterwards, end quote. Quite the romantic. So Madeline seems to serve as a kind of mother figure for him, this sort of symbol of ultimate spiritual restraint. Uh, he, at this point, you know, he's married to, to Madeleine, and he's sort of living as a respectable French cultural bourgeois. Um, at this point, he's corresponding with painters like Edgar Degas. At one point, he writes Degas, quote, What I like about you is that, like me, you hate Jews and think Poussin, a great painter. Fucking hell. <laughs> and uh, he's mayor of a town called La Roque. He publishes a series of books, uh, including The Fruits in April 1897, and that begins to include some of the sort of sensualist inspiration from North Africa. Um,
1: Larry Kramer's The Fruits.
0: Larry Kramer's The Fruits, exactly. Uh, Hedonism evolves into asceticism, this idea of spiritual joy beginning to include the body through the figure of this sort of pure boy. It's exactly this sort of fantasy, pederast fantasy that you were talking about before. In 1902, he publishes one of his most famous books, uh, The Immoralist, which is a semi-autobiographical story of a man named Michel who is raised with strict Huguenot values, learns a series of ancient languages, and begins to fantasize about, quote-unquote, primitives, enters academia, marries a woman to satisfy his dying father, is diagnosed with tuberculosis on his honeymoon in Tunisia, and slowly recovers through a series of obsessive interactions with Algerian boys, through which he loses his wife and career. And so this book is used as an example in Edward Said's uh, collection of essays, Cultural and Imperialism, as an exemplar for Orientalist discourse. And Said also points out how the relationship between this and the sexuality works. So the book, Said says, is, quote, usually read as the story of a man who comes to terms with his eccentric sexuality by allowing it to strip him not only of his wife and career, but paradoxically of his will, end quote. But the homosexuality hides what Said calls, quote, an unmistakably hierarchical relationship. The African boy gives a surreptitious thrill, which in turn is a step along the way to the French narrator's self knowledge. What Muktir, the main boy character, thinks or feels is far less important than what Michel and Menalc, French characters, make of the experience. The people of Africa, and especially those Arabs, are just there. They have no accumulating art or history that is sediented into works. Were it not for the European observer who attests to its existence, it would not matter. Though the instance of a highly individualistic artist, Gide's relationship to Africa belongs to a larger formation of European attitudes and practices towards the continent, End quote. Yeah. So in 1908, Gide co founds and becomes the first editor of the Nouvelle Revue Française, which is a really influential literary journal that becomes a founding part of the iconic publishing house Édition Gallimard. This is where Malraux and Sartre first published. The magazine's publication is interrupted by the First World War, during which at first Gide works in Paris for the Red Cross. But then in 1916, he takes the 15-year-old son of his best friend as his lover and flees with him to London. And he must be then in his 50s at this point. He is uh, 1916 minus 1869. Yep, he's uh, mid-50s. And so this is one of the first times, uh, when his wife really gets mad and does something. And so she burned his letters, all of his letters that were written to her, which he had been collecting. He's someone who has an extremely high sense of his own literary importance. And so he publishes all of his letters. He publishes all of his journals, like he, and he, and he oversees the publications of these things. These are not things that are sort of collected and published after he dies. Yeah. Um. So this is an exchange uh, from that Edmund White essay. Um, so at first I thought my heart had stopped beating that I was dying, Madeleine told Gide. I had suffered so much. I burned your letters in order to have something to do. Before I destroyed them, I read them all over one by one. And Gide's response was, quote, an incomplete, exact, caricatured, grimacing image is now the all that will endure of me. My authentic reflection has been wiped out forever. All that was purest and noblest in my life All that could best have survived and shown and spread warmth and beauty, all is destroyed, and no effort of mine will ever be able to replace it.
1: Fucking do one. So in
0: 1924, Gide has this reputation as a great man of French letters. He's been an inspiration to a couple of generations now of uh, young French writers. Uh, He's just published a respected book on Dostoevsky. His personal life, as always, is a bit messier. In 1923, he fathered an illegitimate daughter by another, uh, one, another offspring of his close friends. This was Elizabeth van Risselberg, who was the daughter of, of the Belgian painter Theo van Risselberg and his wife Maria Monom. Um, we think that this was probably the single time he had sex with a woman. And so all of this is happening sort of behind the scenes, but then. Gide uh, does something that really affects his public reputation, and that is that he publishes the autobiography that I've been reading from, um, and also a book called Corridon. And these are two places where what has until this point been received as literary and symbolist depictions of homosexuality suddenly cross over into his own life. And so suddenly people think, wait a minute, this man who has been writing all these books about how great it is to have sex with Algerian teenagers actually likes having sex with Algerian teenagers. Yeah. Um, Which apparently is surprising (laughs) to a lot of people. Um, This uh, other book, Corridon, um, Gide uh, refers to this as his most important book. Um, To quote Edmund White about this book, quote, there's something fishy about Gide's book. That it defends pedophiles while condemning sodomites, Gide's name for males who sleep with men their own age, and inverts, who Gide defines as those men who play the female role in bed. He even goes so far as to say of inverts, it has always seemed to me that they alone deserve the reproach of moral and intellectual defamation, and were guilty of some of the accusations leveled at all homosexuals. Gide can be tedious with his definitions. Much sprightlier is Proust who once wrote with perfect accuracy, a homosexual is not a man who loves homosexuals, but a man who, seeing a soldier, immediately wants to have him for a friend. End quote. <sighs> <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there, including Edmund White's genius. But, yeah. Um, yeah well, he's a way
1: with words, Proust, as well, no?
0: <laughs> yeah. But one, all of them. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting here is this distinction between, because we're familiar with this kind of sodomite-invert dichotomy yeah. during this period of the construction of the identity, and here's Gide, who's someone who is extremely influential on the construction of that identity, offering this third thing, pederasty, which is the thing that we don't like to talk about. Yeah,
1: as a, se- as a sexual identity in its own right, distinct from...
0: Yes, as a se- but it is something that he, definitely, he includes it in the definition of homosexuality and in the justification of homosexuality in this book, Corridon. So *Coridon* is a series of Socratic dialogues in homosexuality. It makes arguments that our listeners will be familiar with, examples from classical studies, anthropology, and natural sciences, talking about how natural homosexual behavior is. And so he puts pederasty under homosexuality, but then insists that pederasty is different and on a higher level it's like a, he says it's a sort of categorically different spiritual act than sodomy. Um, and I mean, I disagree, I agree that sodomy and pederasty are, um, ethically profoundly different, but I think Gideon and I disagree about the order in which we'd put them. Like, yeah, I think right. it's wrong to abuse and rape children. And I think what two adult men do together is, is, you know, what, what did Wilde say? A noble act. There's nothing finer, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and for Gide, it's the other way around. Yeah, sodomy is base, and pederasty is spiritual and elevated. I mean, we can
1: talk about this later. But what's interesting is that is that although, yeah, I would hold the same opinion as you, there have been maybe at least one generation of men who would of, of homosexual men who nonetheless fit peder- fitted that cultural representation of pederasty into their understanding of the homosexual identity, no?
0: Yeah, well, so let's talk about that. I want to now go back to Edmund White, um, who wrote this really lovely essay, and I don't want to pick on him, but there is one paragraph in this White essay, which is from 1998 from the LRB, which I found rather extraordinary. So, quote, Gide obviously regarded his life as exemplary, and as an open pedophile, he frequently invoked the didactic Greek model of man-boy love. Today, adult sex with adolescents is universally condemned. I suppose if people are going to find the defining moment of their lives to have been the abuse they suffered while young, the act must necessarily and invariably be branded as criminal. But as Alan Sheridan writes of Gide in his comprehensive book, quote, surprisingly, no complaint was ever made against him, either by a boy or his parents. He was, of course, protected by the innocence of the times, but he never forced his attentions on anyone, end quote. And so I find this to be a really troubling passage by White um, because a few things are going on. One thing that I think is really interesting that's going on is that despite White earlier in the essay articulating how different his homosexuality is from Gide's, he's still obviously been so shaped by it. Like, despite White saying, I, I agree that it's nuts that Gide is saying that pederasty is more noble than consensual adult sodomy, he's still so shaped by it that he feels the need to somehow come to its defense. And he uses what I find to be this very weak defense that, well, no one ever complained. Well, who was going to complain? Like, the, the parents of of in in what context and to to use, and to use the phrase, the innocence of the times, um, you know, really does, I think kind of miss the point, especially when we're talking about these Algerian and Tunisian boys who no one in their lives was in any position to complain.
1: Yeah, no, that's like a a rhetorical trick that is below Edmund White. Um, and what does, what would, yeah, like as you said, what would what would a complaint look like? Because he's already acknowledged that the uh, formulation of this sort of um, sex was this like abusive power relationship, like it's intrinsic to it, and he acknowledges that. So therefore, like the, per- the 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 victim of this is in no position to complain. They have no one to complain to. Like that's why
0: he goes to North Africa to. To, to commit these crimes yeah in the case of the boys in north africa there's no means of complaint meaningfully um and, and in the case of the of the children of his friends like mark alegre with whom he's still traveling in the 20s when alegre is in his 20s um it, it, even there it's it, you know the, to to frame all of the systems of silencing and shame and and all of that as an age of innocence seems to me to be a bit perverse and beneath uh, beneath white's intelligence and 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 um, really collaborating with some with some nasty stuff so in 1925 Gide embarks with Alegre on a journey to sub-Saharan Africa and he visits Dakar, Conakry, Kinshasa, Brazzaville and then travels up the river to more inland destination So the book, uh, Travels in the Congo, is dedicated to Joseph Conrad, and it opens along standard Conradian lines with a a narrator in, quote, inexpressible languor, talking about how he doesn't know why he's traveling, and he'll see when he gets there. But the text then goes on to decry French colonialism, to compare the treatment of African people colonized by the French to chattel slavery, to denounce French capitalism for its exploitation of colonized subjects. And so once again, I want to think of uh, Kaji Amin's work on Jeannet. Rather than thinking about Gide moving through sex with Arab and African boys towards a politics of everybody, instead I want to think about the various kinds of outmoded and disturbing attachments, to borrow Amin's terminology, that construct Gide's life on the brink of various extremely different versions of deviant male sexuality, inversion, pederasty, and the emerging gay-dominant ideal of sex between adult men. And it's important, I think, to remember that not everyone, even people as influential as Gide, were in favor of or expressed the kinds of ideas that ended up dominating, right? The sex between adult men ideal. So this growing concern for the oppressed then extends to a period where Gide uh, never joins but becomes very close to the Communist Party. This is in the early 1930s as fascism is rising in Europe and Gide is a committed anti-fascist. Paris at this time is a haven for refugee intellectuals from Hitler's Germany, and Gide says that communism is starting to, quote, distract me frightfully from literature, end quote. The party was very much aware of how important a major figure like this could be to their cause, um, but uh, his communism didn't survive a trip to the USSR in 1936, uh, in which he was dismayed and made furious by Stalinism and by Stalinist controls on cultural expression. As he traveled around the country, his speeches would be taken from him, and he'd then be, they'd be handed back to him with more praise for Stalin added in. And so Gide publishes a travelogue revealing all of this, which then makes the communists furious at him and call him a fascist and, uh, and turn on him. Standard. In 1938, Gide's wife Madeleine died. And in 1942, he moved to North Africa, and that's where he lived out the Second World War. In 1947, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature and in 1950 published the final volume of his journal and with that stopped writing for the final year of his life. I want to close uh, this narration with a big extended quote from Gide's book, The Counterfeiters, which is about various school friends and their gay affairs with one another. And I think this gets us close to his um, literary project, which has not been really the center of this narration, um, and to his sort of remarkable prose. Quote, There is a kind of tragedy, it seems to me, which has hitherto almost entirely eluded literature. The novel has dealt with the contrariness of fate, good or evil fortune, social relationships, the conflicts of passions and of characters, but not with the very essence of man's being. And yet the whole effect of Christianity was to transfer the drama onto the moral plane. But properly speaking, there are no Christian novels. There are novels whose purpose is edification, but that has nothing to do with what I mean. Moral tragedy. The tragedy, for instance, which gives such terrific meaning to the gospel text, if the salt have lost his flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? That is the tragedy with which I am concerned, end quote. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, That really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in uh, joining our Patreon, uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. There is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, Nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, We have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And, um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it.
1: Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if um, if you prefer paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism.
0: Yeah, it's... Um if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com slash book. And now on with the show.
1: Thanks, Ben. That's a uh, uh, fascinating and uh, really troubling story. I guess it's a very complicated conversation to begin to have about um, the role of pederasty and how pederasty was understood in the formulation of uh, homosexual and perhaps queer identities in the late 19th and early 20th century. Partly because I think a lot of people are are, are reticent about having the conversation about it existing at all because it's such a slur that's pulled out at any opportunity against LGBTQ people in general and perhaps gay men, especially that homosexuality and pederasty are uh, the same thing or have, you know, that homosexuals are implicitly pederasts, pedophiles that's been something that's been used so frequently to oppress um, LGBTQ people. Um, how do we, how do we go about having that conversation um, without giving fuel to those people who today will still try and suggest that um, being LGBTQ is part of some sort of, uh, you know, pedophilic culture, which, you know, you'll see in mainstream, mainstream newspapers around trans issues today and on Fox news and what have you, there's a
0: very common sort of libel against us. I think the right is going to say this no matter what we say. And so I think if we don't talk about, it then we have given them the complete discursive playing field to talk about it and i think that we have to be able to talk about it and we have to talk be able to talk about how wrong it was and is when it happened and how wrong it was that so much of this stuff got branched together and somewhere between actively celebrated and mistakenly defended by Large portions of some gay liberation movements Mm -hmm. without pretending that sex with people of this age group was a uniquely homosexual occurrence. This is a time when, then as now, high powered upper class men are regularly abusing young teenagers or having sex with older teenagers or people in their early twenties. Right. And like having sex with someone who's 19 or 20 is not the same as abusing someone who's 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to make that equivalence at all, um, ethically. Uh, but there is, there is something of the kind of youth cult of the sexual beloved for the high powered man, right? right. Which provides a cover for, and a romanticization of child abuse. And this happens between men and boys the same as it happens between men and girls, right? Yeah. Um, We know from statistics that most childhood sexual abuse happens in the family, that most childhood sexual abuse is committed by straight identifying men. Right. So we know that this is not a uniquely gay phenomenon Mm. at the same time, to the extent that sexual liberation movements Because on the one hand, they desired to oppose all restrictions on sex. And on the other hand, because they were still fundamentally often constructed around the um, power and privilege and attendant sexual desires of the upper class man, too often ended up defending and encouraging this kind of really awful behavior and even adopting it as something that was related to or a part of their own movement.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the most noticeable things both in Sheed's writing and other writings of the time around um, uh, this constant uh, advocate, I guess, this form of homosexual pederasty as a, as a sexual subjectivity is this, absolute steamrollering of the subjectivity of the older man who takes the child's who who almost ventriloquizes for the tri- child a form of purity and or a form of innocence or a form of unspoiltness by uh, the sexual mores of the time in order to, and ventri- ventriloquizes those, those experiences that that man hasn't had that that child probably isn't having and ventriloquizes that as some sort of um, justification or uh, advocacy for like a more liberated form of sexuality, which in reality is just obviously a a justification of um, their own uh, sort of desire to to abuse that child. Um, And yet at the same time, it exists as a form of, um, it exists as a form of writing that is sort of, Creating a the idea, creating a sexual subject, the homosexual, because um, because it is outside the mainstream bourgeois sexuality, so that the that it becomes advocacy in its very existence. Whereas the the heterosexual men who are engaged in childhood sexual abuse writing about it aren't don't see themselves necessarily as performing a form of advocacy for that because it's something that already exists and is, to a huge extent at the time,
0: tolerated within um, Within that society. Right, and we're also talking about societies that have a completely different understanding of the meaning of childhood and adulthood, um, of when those things occur and in which, I mean, we're talking about societies in which people are regularly being married at 14 or 15. Um, yeah. And then we're also talking about societies in which oftentimes it's the same law that bans both consensual adult sodomy and childhood sexual abuse. And so the movements against one and the other end up combining. And understanding one another as allied um, in this kind of, at least to me, really horrible and and um, yeah, horrible way. I think. I think also with regards to
1: it being seen as part of um, an advocacy of it within a homosexual s- sexual subjectivity that's emerging at the time that doesn't need to be articulated by heterosexual men who are, men who are engaging in childhood sexual abuse, because that is something that is to a degree or was to a degree already normalized as part of that. It wasn't something that required advocacy for those men. You know, that when, if you remember from a few episodes ago, when we were talking, I was mentioning, um, uh, Peron in Argentina and how Peron was grooming this 13 year old child. And that was sort of reported on as a sort of, um, you know, not even a sex scandal, like a, a bit of tabloid gossip and his response to it. Was, you know, uh, when someone said, um, uh, is, is it true she's 13 was don't, it doesn't bother me. I'm not, I'm not superstitious. You know, that, that was something that was like already normalized. So that doesn't fit in the, cre- into the creation of the heterosexual subject because it was already there.
0: Right. Or, you know, when Jerry Seinfeld was a 39 year old major TV star, he was dating a 17 year old in high school. Yeah this is public knowledge, right? Um, And yeah, I mean, there's, it's, uh, what I don't want to do is end the conversation here and downplay the extent to which, and I think the responsibility that gay liberation movements and, and people who feel like they've inherited them have to do the historical and ethical work of processing and, and thinking through historical complicity. No, um, my, my,
1: my point wasn't. Yeah, of course, I agree. My point isn't that. My point is that um, that, that, that complicity and that um, the existence of pederasty within the creation of a sexual subject is used as a libel against LGBTQ people, where actually it's a condition of uh, human societies where, with power differentials where men want to abuse children.
0: Yeah. And what these people never want to say is that, you know, the the queer institutions and the movements are are throwing open our archives and are critically reassessing all these years of our complicity. And what the Catholic Church is doing is trying to, you know, uh, cover things up as long as possible and deny and deny and deflect and deflect. Um, And so I think it's important that we have these conversations openly, that we open our archives and our... our uh, sort of physical archives, but also the kinds of archives of our cultural memory and of our cultural admiration to this kind of critical re-examination um, and that we are willing to be ruthless in this way and that we are willing to lose um, or demote or accept complicated facts about beloved figures in order to do this important ethical work. Right. The conversation is
1: important. It's important to have the conversation because it's important to rep- repudiate the ar- arguments that those people were making for abuse.
0: Yeah, and it's also important to have it in our head. Like I'm not. I wouldn't tell anyone to throw away their Gide books. Um, I, I'm not really a believer in 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 that as a functional approach, especially for people who are dead. I mean, it's you know, in the case of someone like R. Kelly, right? The 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 case is very clear. You buy this person's music, you are keeping them alive, and you are funding the system of abuse and torture, right? Gide is dead. Um, I think we can read Gide. I think we should read Gide. I think we can get something from reading Gide. But I think that having, dealing with this critically while we engage with Gide is important. Yeah. Um, what I think is also really interesting, again, to this point that you made about who has to justify it. Um, when I was reading about this, uh, there were a lot of times when in some of the kind of straight appreciations of Gide, the more pure literary appreciations of Gide, the way that I thought this was talked about, found this being talked about, was often even a lot more um, minimizing than in Edmund White, right? Edmund White at least admits that there's something weird about this and then has this kind of back, backside of justification. Whereas in a lot of the other texts, it's just written about is this like, oh yeah, and then he discovered the secret to sensualism in these beautiful Tunisian boys. And then he went and had a pizza. I mean, there's yeah. no... There's no grappling with it and no acknowledgement of it at all i think for for a certain kind of straight literary critic, it's almost like it's almost f- like fine to imagine i don't know it's 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 hard to explain what I'm saying here but
1: yeah maybe there's also a fear of for those people of having those <laughs> conversations which we should be having because they don't want to be perceived as as engaging in that same homophobic libel
0: exactly or they think that. This is just what all gay men are, and so I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah.
1: On that note, actually, I, I think my second question. I was I was really shocked because you'd said earlier in the in the in his biography that he'd um, the real sort of one of the real changes in his life was after he released his autobiography, and then that that then people realised all this stuff was not just like a sort of this sort of um literary symbolism but was his actual sexual preferences which first of all sounds completely crazy to me in the first place that you would uh not make that connection but secondly that then later and later in his life he'd received the nobel prize for literature why why yeah I i guess my question is uh uh, something that will be very hard for I guess for most readers, most listeners today to understand is why was were these admissions in his autobiography not career ending um, things to, to 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 boast about? Because that's that's not gay people keeping him in that position. That's a that's a heterosexual culture, lit- literary culture, no.
0: It is, and I think it speaks to the extent to which all of this stuff is so minimized that it almost becomes part of the romantic myth of the artist, right? As opposed to being taken seriously, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's, oh yes, of course, it's the, it's, it's, he becomes such a sort of, he's such a large literary figure that it just kind of gets... It gets excused the way that you know they all sort of excused or ignored uh, Proust or Wilde himself, right? Yeah, and again, for this audience, it's all the same, even though it obviously isn't yeah, without wanting to get into some sort of um
1: literary xenophobia here do you, do you think there's something um unique about French sort of high literary culture that tolerates all these sorts of crimes? Under the under the heading of, um, you know, the untouchable artist should be allowed to deal with anything because because she not the first or the last to to sort of engage in these crimes and write about them in a literary way and it you know to go on and to win a Nobel Prize or to continue to be part of French literary culture. There's figures like Roger Peyrefitte in the middle half of the the middle part of the 20th century. who you know not not hugely respected but still part of that culture. Also, unlike Gabriel Matzneff who you know was regularly i think appearing on tv shows and in newspapers um until maybe five or ten years ago despite the fact that he'd written extensively about um him abusing um children young boys and very young boys in um uh, as a sex tourist in in asia so-called sex tourist in asia um is is that something that the is to do with this French concept of the public intellectual? Or do you think that's something that's actually a result of someone like Gide and that G- Gide managed to maintain his career and receive these accolades?
0: I think that there is something about the French, fig- the French figure of the kind of intellectual or writer in which that person is seen as being above morality. Um and I don't want to say that the, on this particular theme, especially because actually the, I mean, I know the history of German uh, gay liberation a lot better and the history of German gay liberation's relationship specifically with pederasty is um, quite long and troubling. And I'd be surprised if the French one would, could be longer or more troubling. Um, what I think is uh it's more of the case here is that this is the, it's the sort of writer that is understood because of the talent and because of art as being on this kind of plane of art in which that's what really matters. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for that, Ben. Yeah, a really
1: interesting and troubling, troubling story about power. Um, I think we can probably both agree that he was a bad gay
0: yeah, definitely a bad gay, and someone who uh, who's has to be reckoned with both as a writer and as someone who helps to construct some of these really um, abusive and dysfunctional um, approaches to power into certain elements of of gay culture.
1: And if people are interested in reading more about Gide, uh, what were some of the sources you used for this episode?
0: So there is the aforementioned biography of Gide by George D. Painter. Um, there is that wonderful essay about Gide by uh, Edmund White in the London Review of Books. There's Gide's autobiography. Um, and um, also a book by uh, called Paris on the Brink, which is about a um, variety of uh, French intellectuals in the early years of the 1930s. And that book is by Mary McAuliffe. Um, and those were the main sources I used for this. And that's where I would recommend people go to learn more.
1: Great. Well, you've been listening to bad gaze. You can find us online at badgazepod.com on social media at badgazepods. Um, you can find me at Hugh Lemmy. And me at Ben writes things. Until next week. Goodbye.
0: Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.